We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 73 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, May 28th, 2021. Memorial Day weekend, 2021 is upon us. One of the great holiday weekends of the year. A, because the weekend honors people who are truly worthy of being honored. B, because the weekend is the unofficial start of summer. Although the weather in the D.C. area is supposedly going to be awful, rainy and cool. It's supposed to be in the 50s, the 50s on Saturday and just the 60s on Sunday. I can't ever remember that being the case. A day in the 50s on Memorial Day weekend in the D.C. area, or as some like to say, the D.C. area. Can we please just have a nice and normal Memorial Day weekend, especially what we're coming out of here, right? We have earned a nice and normal Memorial Day weekend. We are ready to unleash the fun, unleash the fury, like is said at Capitals game. So no more cold and no more masks. Not if you don't have to. No mask for me at the gym on Thursday. My first maskless workout in well over a year. Yes, I removed the mask. Haven't had to wear a mask 
for a week or so. I had continued to wear it until I was two weeks removed from my second COVID-19 vaccine shot. And then on Thursday, no mask. Remember, no soup for you on Seinfeld. No mask for you. That's what I said to myself on Thursday. Well, I hope you are going to enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. I would say that I hope you're going to enjoy this installment of the podcast, but I know that you are going to enjoy this installment of the podcast. I have some intel regarding the Washington football team that I'm going to be sharing with you in just a bit. So prepare yourself here. The intel has to do with the divorce between the Washington football team and Dr. Robin West. I will lay out what I have learned, what it better explains, and what it means. Also, regarding the Washington football team, something that Ron Rivera said on Tuesday that we have not yet discussed, it is a something that further illuminates Ron's thinking at quarterback for Washington, and I have a theory that I believe further explains Ron's thinking at quarterback. If you're a Washington football team fan, you don't want to miss these two segments. I can promise you that. Also, the Wizards, they have games three and four against the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of the NBA playoffs on this Memorial Day weekend. It could be the final two games of the Wizards season, but the games will be taking place at Capital One Arena, where around 10,000 fans will be allowed to attend. They'll give you my Wizards thoughts. I've got a lot to say about the Nationals, what went down for them in their last two games of a series loss to the Cincinnati Reds at Nationals Park, including the uh, game and a half that took place on Thursday. And the reason for that, the rain-induced suspension of game two of the series on Wednesday night, the way that Nats fans at Nationals Park were treated on Wednesday night with the lack of communication was absurd. We have another Orioles loss to discuss as well. So I have three things to update you on regarding the podcast. Item number one, there will be no episode on Memorial Day, i.e. this Monday. Yes, I am taking my first day off in terms of a weekday since I started doing this podcast in late February. I figured it's a holiday. People's listening patterns are probably going to be a little out of whack anyway. So I'll be back at full force with a show for Tuesday. Remember, out by 5 a.m., waiting for you when you wake up. No other podcast or show like this in the D.C. area. Now, if something huge happens this weekend, if the Washington football team trades for Aaron Rodgers this weekend, well, then yeah, I will do a show for Monday. But barring something monumental, Monday shall be a day of vacay. Item number two, the timestamps. Says you likely know, I put out timestamps for every episode of the podcast. I know that a lot of you like the timestamps. I like the timestamps. I don't like it when podcasts don't have timestamps. I like talking about all of the area teams that I talk about, but I know that not everyone wants to hear about every team that I talk about, and that's fine. So some people only listen to this podcast to hear about, say, the Washington football team and the Nationals. That's okay. Listen to what you want, whenever you want. All I care is that you listen. But I put in the timestamps so you know when each thing is coming up and you can skip around to whatever you want. I know that the timestamps for some of you have been off lately. Trust me, I am not happy about this. I won't bore you with the details, but this has to do with ads that are automatically inserted into each episode. And the ads apparently can be different depending on how you listen to the podcast, i.e. Apple Podcasts versus Google Podcasts. And so because the ads are different, 
the times are different. And when the times are different, then my timestamps get thrown off. I'm working with a company I'm working for, Blue Wire, to get this fixed. Just know that I am aware of the issue. I am not happy about the issue. And uh, I do hope to have it rectified soon. I myself do the timestamps. This should not be as complicated of a process as it has become uh, over these last few weeks. And then item number three to update you on regarding this podcast, a rankings update. This podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, up seven spots in the latest Apple podcast rankings in the U.S. football category to number 30 in the country. Yes, top 30 in the country. And get this, one spot behind the Adam Schefter podcast. Yes, we are nipping at the heels of Adam Schefter. This humble podcast, which just started in late February, this humble podcast done in a makeshift studio for which pillows and blankets serve as soundproofing, one spot behind the Adam Schefter podcast of the mighty ESPN Empire. So thank you for your support. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Give the podcast a five-star rating. Write like a one-sentence review of the podcast. None of this costs you anything, but it all helps out a lot. And with your continued support, we can overtake Schefter. That now is the mission for this podcast. Overtake the Adam Schefter podcast. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Muhammad in Hawaii. He writes, at the beginning, I sent you feedback that I hated the song. Ah, yes, we have not done this in a while, right? Where people stand on the intro song, continues Muhammad. But it is now that I recognize my mistake. I listened to the podcast on one and a half times speed And on that, it sounds like someone playing gibberish beats while being on PCP. (laughs) But if you listen to it on the intended one-time speed, it's actually kind of awesome. Count me amongst the converts. How about that? Muhammad in Hawaii, who couldn't stand the intro song, is now on board with the intro song. I've said this for weeks. This has been the trend with the song. Initially, people hated it, and now people have come around to it. It's incredible how this has played out. Also, says Muhammad, as far as the outlook on the Caps, even if they never win another playoff series in the OV era, I'm still going to remember them fondly. I'm in my age 30 season, and someday being able to tell my kids how dominant the Caps and Nats were for a full decade is nothing that early exits from playoffs can destroy. Majority of the games I watch are regular season anyway, so at least I got tons of joy from them. At least they both won it all once. Email from Clay. He writes regarding the Caps. John Press was a great guest. Thank you. And I think he nailed what I've been trying to say even better than I could. We all think they should have won more Cups, etc., but it is hard not to be impressed by the record of dominance that the Ovechkin era has brought to this town, and it absolutely dwarfs the other franchises. For easily over a decade, you could have a pretty good expectation that if you went to a game or turned them on TV, they were going to win. Even this year, they limped to the finish line, but still only lost the division on the third tiebreaker to the Pens. 
that sustained excellence that only the Nats have come close to matching over a shorter period of time and not even during their World Series title season. I am giddy to see the Burgundy and Gold win a division at 7-9. and nine. They have defined down expectations so low. The 91 Skins had that expectation that they could and likely would beat anyone they played, and only the Caps have come close to that since. You're right. I don't disagree with any of that. I think with the Caps, two things can be true. A, you appreciate the regular season success, and you laud the Caps for the consistency with which the franchise makes the Stanley Cup playoffs, as I do. But B, you're disappointed by the lack of true high achievement in the Stanley Cup playoffs over the years, save for winning the 2018 Stanley Cup final. I think it's perfectly fine and reasonable to subscribe to those two notions. I know I do. I appreciate the regular season success, but I lament the fact that the Caps have only made it past the second round in the Stanley Cup playoffs three times. That's it. 28 of the Caps' 31 all-time Stanley Cup playoff appearances have ended in a first or second round. And when you add to that all of the two-game series leads that have been blown, all of the Game 7 losses that have been suffered, you're not wrong to look at the Caps in the postseason and say, hey, I really wish they would have done better over the years, especially in the Ovechkin era. But no doubt, man, you can never diminish what the Caps have done in the regular season. And no doubt, since the heyday of the Skins, no team in this area has been better than the Capitals. Well, hopefully Ron Rivera is in the process of getting the Washington football team to being where the franchise was at back in the glory days. And if that does happen, you know the thing that's going to deserve credit more than anything, right? Position flex. Position flex. Exactly, Ron. Well, one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker, is now offering something called Commission Flex. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, even if you're just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandland, a.k.a. John G., and ask him about his Commission Flex. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. That wouldn't be smart. Let John put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right, for free. Some conditions apply. Interviewing John Grandland is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandland. He will sell your home guaranteed and ask him about what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, the Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John Grandland has commission flex. Here's the phone number, 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. Or check out John Grandland online, johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandland, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, He is the master of commission flex.
Position flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. Another email that I wanted to read to you comes from Billy D in North Carolina. He writes, if Jay-Z invests in the WFT, maybe the name will be the Washington Rappers. For a new theme song, we could modify the words to Beyonce's single ladies describing our possible future. We're going to put a ring on it. Thank you, Billy D. I like that. Uh, speaking of Jay-Z potentially becoming a minority owner of the Washington football team. So I, on Thursday's installment of the podcast, talked about that at length and brought up Dan Snyder potentially trying to dress a certain way to impress Jay-Z were he to become a minority owner of the Washington football team. Might Dan try to hip-hop it up? You know, baggy jeans, starter jacket. Those things are outdated, of course, but that's what a white guy in his 50s would do. Anyway, I also brought up Dan wearing Timberland boots, and it turns out that the Donnie has worn Timberland boots, or at least Timberland-like boots, uh, thanks to James C3 and Phil of the Washington Football Addicts for tweeting me the glorious photo of the Donnie looking all gangsta in his Timberland boots or Timberland-like boots. Uh, he's worn some kind of skin shirt with a skins jacket, black jeans or black sweatpants, hard to tell, and then the apparently loosely laced boots. That, my friends, is Gangsta Danny. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you, Danny. Anyway, so how about Ron Rivera on Thursday rewarding his players for showing up in grand fashion for the start of OTA practices this week? We've been talking about this. The attendance at Washington's OTA practice on Tuesday, 86 players for a voluntary practice, especially given that the NFL Players Association has been pushing for players to boycott in-person off-season workouts. I thought 86 players showing up was tremendous. I thought that that was a sign of the Ron Rivera culture change taking effect. Not that the culture has been completely fixed, but things are on the right track. Well, Ron on Thursday canceled Washington's third week of OTA practices, June 8th through June 10th, and moved Washington's mandatory minicamp to those dates, meaning that the break before training camp will start a week earlier then the break was supposed to start. This is like a boss giving his employees a Friday off for a job well done. Don Ron canceling the final week of OTA practices, moving up the mandatory minicamp by a week, and allowing his players and also his coaches and himself to begin the break before the start of training camp a week earlier. So off that Tuesday OTA practice that was open to the media, we had a post-practice Zoom press conference for Ron on Wednesday's podcast, episode 71 Took it through a bunch of what Ron said, but something that we did not discuss is something that I want to get into right now. So as we all know, Washington's offense, especially the passing game, was really bad last season. One of the things that has been crystal clear this offseason is the goal of improving the passing game, right? Signing Ryan Fitzpatrick, signing Curtis Samuel, signing Adam Humphreys, drafting Deami Brown, let's be honest, cutting Alex Smith, etc. This was Ron on Tuesday on if there has been a season in his career in which an offense that he was associated with took a big step forward from one season to the next, as Washington's offense, hopefully, is about to do. You know, it's interesting because the styles are similar, but the players are different, obviously. Um, You know, one of the positions we relied on so heavily was quarterback in Carolina, um, in terms of, of, of our entire offense here, we don't necessarily have to rely on the quarterback because we've got, you know, we, we, we do have a lot of good weapons, uh, around our QB position. So, um, 
this is a bit a little bit different for for me as I study it and look at it and watch our guys. Um, but it's good to see the type of personnel we have. You know, I, I thought we improved and we improved at receiver, we improved at tight end, we improved at running back. You know, again, one of the goals that you you know you want to do when you, you talk about your offense every year is you want to make sure you can protect your quarterback and you have playmakers around them. And and I feel this year is is a different group of guys, but I feel we're in better position than we were last year. So did you catch the following line from Ron early in his answer? Here, we don't necessarily have to rely on the quarterback. We do have a lot of good weapons around our QB position. And then he says, we're in better position than we were last year. So first of all, Ron's saying here, we don't necessarily have to rely on the quarterback. We do have a lot of good weapons around our QB position. That right there is further confirmation of something that I've been talking about on the podcast. I talked about this on episode 63 and then talked about this with Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus on episode 68. Washington zigging while others are zagging. Washington very astutely exploiting a market inefficiency in a time in which so many teams are giving up a ton to get potential franchise quarterbacks, not even definite franchise quarterbacks, but potential franchise quarterbacks via trade-ups and drafts. Washington signed Ryan Fitzpatrick to a one-year $10 million contract for his age 39 season. The San Francisco 49ers on March 26 acquired the number three pick in the 2021 draft from the Miami Dolphins for the Niners' 2021 first-round pick, 2022 and 2023 first-round picks, and a 2022 compensatory third-round pick. The 49ers, of course, used that number three overall pick on North Dakota State quarterback Trey Lance. Maybe Trey Lance becomes an elite franchise quarterback for years to come. But what if he doesn't? In an offseason in which the Niners spent three first-round picks and a third-round pick to take Lance, Washington signed Ryan Fitzpatrick to a one-year $10 million contract for his age 39 season. Again, zigging while others are zagging. And that's actually in effect in multiple ways because Washington, in addition to having spent zero draft capital to acquire Fitzpatrick, also is spending very little money on Fitzpatrick relative to the position. Understand that Fitzpatrick, as we speak, is tied with the Chicago Bears' Andy Dalton for 19th among quarterbacks in the NFL in average annual value, AAV, at $10 million per year. Again, it's a one-year $10 million deal. So Ron on Tuesday again confirmed his true thinking at quarterback this offseason. Remember, Ron, in the week that followed the draft, opened up about the way that he views the quarterback position. He, in multiple interview settings, brought up Nick Foles and how you don't have to have an elite franchise quarterback to do really well in a season. And it's not just Foles, who is an example of a non-elite, non-franchise quarterback having recently made a Super Bowl, right? 2019 season, Super Bowl 54, Patrick Mahomes beat Jimmy Garoppolo. 2018 season, Super Bowl 53, Tom Brady beat Jared Goff. 2017 season, Super Bowl 52, the aforementioned Nick Foles beat Brady. Heck, the 2015 season, Super Bowl 50, Peyton Manning, who was shot, beat Cam Newton and Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers. And I believe that that game sticks with Ron from this standpoint. Ron had the great quarterback in that game, not the Broncos, and yet the Broncos beat Ron's Panthers thanks to the Broncos having an excellent defense. Ron learned firsthand how a non-elite quarterback can win a Super Bowl. And I know, 
that non-elite quarterback was Peyton Manning, one of the best quarterbacks ever. But that was his last season, and he was woeful that season. Peyton in the 2016 NFL playoffs went 3-0 and despite throwing two touchdown passes over the three games, during which he did throw just one interception, but still two touchdown passes over the three games. He, over those three games, averaged 5.86 yards per pass attempt. That is microscopic. And he, over the three games, completed just 55.4% of his passes. As the former Washington head coach, Steve Spurrier, would say, Not very good. No. No, that's not very good, Coach Spurrier. How about Peyton that regular season? Peyton, in the 2015 regular season, ranked 28th out of 33 qualified quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR at 44.2. And check out what his touchdown to INT ratio was. You ready for this? Peyton in the 2015 regular season, nine touchdown passes versus 17 interceptions. Not very good. No, no, it's not. We are the sum of our experiences. Ron's experiences as an NFL head coach include losing a Super Bowl in which the winning quarterback in the regular season had nine touchdown passes versus 17 interceptions. That, to me, sticks with Ron and makes him think, yeah, I'd love to have a truly elite franchise quarterback a la Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes, but if an obvious or very likely one isn't readily available to me, I'm fine going with a much cheaper but still potentially effective enough quarterback. And in Fitzpatrick's case, effective enough is key. Ron saying in that cut that I just played for you, we're in better position than we were last year. He hopefully is right about that with the skill position players. Like, I'm excited to see the newcomers, you know, Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Deami Brown. You can almost consider Antonio Gandy-Golden a newcomer with how little he played in his rookie season of last year. Antonio Gibson is a year older. Kim Sims is a year older. Terry McLaurin is great. I do think that it could be tough for Logan Thomas and J.D. McKissick to be as good this season as they were last season, but we'll see. And you know what? Maybe they're better in 2021 than they were in 2020. But there's no doubt There's no hesitation whatsoever regarding the Ryan Fitzpatrick of the last two seasons being an upgrade over what Washington had at quarterback last season. Fitzpatrick, top 10 in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR each of the last two regular seasons. He was fifth in 2020. He was eighth in 2019. Here were the pro football focus grades and rankings of Fitzpatrick versus Alex Smith and Dwayne Haskins among qualified quarterbacks, those each with at least 250 dropbacks over the last two years, 2019 and 2020 regular seasons. Fitzpatrick overall grade of 76, that ranked 18th out of 44 qualified quarterbacks. Alex Smith overall grade of 66.9, that ranked 29th out of 44 qualified quarterbacks. Dwayne Haskins overall grade of 56.6, that ranked 41st out of 44 qualified quarterbacks. The issue isn't whether Fitzpatrick is elite. Of course he isn't elite, even though he has played at a top 10 level the last two seasons. The issue is whether Fitzpatrick is an upgrade over what Washington has had at quarterback over the last few seasons. And if you're comparing the Fitzpatrick of the last two seasons with what Washington has had at quarterback the last two seasons, the answer is about as resounding of a yes as you can have. Now, if Fitzpatrick falls off a cliff this coming season, if he's terrible this coming season, if he's more Ryan Fitztragic than Ryan Fitzmagic, then no, he is not an upgrade. 
But I think that it's more than reasonable to believe that he'll be at least decent this upcoming season, even if you don't want to buy into him having been a top 10 guy the last two years, right? Again, top 10 in QBR each of the last two seasons. Those pro football focus rankings the last two years are telling. Fitzpatrick, again, 18th out of 44 qualified quarterbacks over the last two years. So that's not great, but that's solid. You know, that's top 20 in the NFL. Alex Smith, again, 29th. Dwayne, 41st. Not very good. Exactly. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Well, speaking of rankings, one of the guys at the top of our list here at the Al Galdi podcast is Dr. George Verghese, the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs Surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. If you or someone you know is dealing with skin cancer, find out more. Give Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland a call. The phone number is 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number is 301-396-3401. Or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so I recently received some intel on the departure of Dr. Robin West from the Washington football team. And this installment of the podcast is a good opportunity to get into this intel. But let's first set this up. Innova right? The nonprofit health system based in Falls Church, Virginia. Inova this past April 2nd announced that it had, quote, made the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team positions for the Washington football team, end quote. And we talked about this on the podcast. This was a very significant development. Washington had hired Dr. Robin West, the medical director of Inova Sports Medicine, as the team's director of sports medicine in June 2016. It was West who had served as the lead physician and surgeon for Alex Smith over his 17 surgeries on his right leg. And it was Inova that had been a major sponsor for the Washington football team. Heck, the team's headquarters in Ashburn, Virginia, known as the Inova Sports Performance Center. Anova in the statement said the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team positions for the Washington football team was based on Anova having, quote, revisited its strategic priorities, end quote, and having, quote, become even more focused on advancing patient-centered care in the D.C. region, end quote. And all of that, of course, came off as a bunch of corporate mumbo-jumbo and not the truth. Anova in the statement did say 
that the system sponsorship as the official health system for the Washington football team would continue through the 2021 season, but whatever. What happened with Anova, which had had a big money relationship with Washington for years, had Ron Rivera soured on Anova, was the parting of the ways with Anova, another example of Don Ron's baptism of fire this offseason, i.e. eliminating those from the Washington football team who we saw in the way. Anyway, as many of you pointed out, there is the Dwight Shaw connection when it comes to Anova. The announcement from Anova that it had, quote, made the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team, end quote, came on the exact same day that Dan Snyder buying out his three disgruntled minority investors in the Washington football team, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith, became official. April 2nd, part of the Inova Health System is the Inova Shar Cancer Institute, which is named after, yes, Dwight Shar. We in May 2015 learned that he and his wife Martha donated $50 million to build what became the Inova Shar Cancer Institute. And keep in mind, right, it was Shar who the Donny claimed helped to fund the smear campaign against the Donny in the summer of 2020. So this seemed to explain the divorce between the Washington football team and Inova. Inova's close ties with Dwight Shar, who Dan Snyder now despises. Well, that isn't the only reason that the divorce is taking place. I have learned that Dr. Robin West and Washington's head athletic trainer, Ryan Vermillion, had problems during the 2020 season. They had, at the very least, professional issues, if not personal issues. Among the problems was the treatment of injured players. Weston Vermillion did not agree on certain things. Now, who was right? Who was wrong? I do not know. It's possible that both were right in their own ways. I don't know much about being a doctor, but I know enough to know that there's a lot of gray area and a lot of nuance when it comes to being a doctor and diagnosing and treating injuries. But the point here is there were issues between Weston Vermillion, including the treatment of injured players, including Alex Smith, who essentially hid his right calf injury from Vermillion, or at the very least, downplayed it. And I say right calf because it may be that that was never a right calf injury. More on that in a bit. But this would help to explain, right, the bizarre, mysterious, and confusing nature of Alex's right calf injury in the 2020 season just to go back and go through some things. So Alex Smith was Washington's QB1 weeks 10 through 14, with Washington going 4-1 and during that stretch. But the last of those games, that 23-15 win over the San Francisco 49ers and Arizona last December 13th, that game included Alex leaving the game in the second quarter due to what was called right calf soreness and tightness. Alex did not look good during his time in that game. 8-19, and for just 57 yards, that's three yards per pass attempt, no touchdowns, threw a pick, got sacked once, led a Washington offense that went one for seven on third downs with him in the game, and Alex for the game registered a total QBR per ESPN of eight. QBRs on a scale of zero to 100, Alex's total QBR for that game was eight. Then came Alex missing two consecutive games, those in weeks 15 and 16, due to a right calf injury. 
Now, missing two games in the midst of a playoff push due to a right calf injury did seem a bit odd because initially it was not said that this right calf thing was that big of a thing. But the thinking became, as you may recall, that for Alex, perhaps a right calf injury is more significant than it would be for most people due to what had happened with Alex's right leg. But as time went on, right, Alex insisted that the injury had nothing to do with what had happened with his right leg. Week 17, Alex is back. He returns as Washington's starting quarterback. The Washington football team concludes a 7-9 regular season, clinches the NFC East with a 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football. But Washington won that game in spite of Alex, not because of Alex. Alex was not good in that game. He averages 5.06 yards per pass attempt, threw two interceptions, had a fumble, got sacked three times. He, for the game, registered a total QBR per ESPN of just 31.2. And remember what Ron Rivera during his post-game Zoom press conference, admitted to having actually considered. Yes, benching Alex. Quote, I thought about it. I thought it worked out well enough, end quote. Then we early this offseason found out more about the quote-unquote right half injury that plagued Alex over the final month of Washington's 2020 season. Ron Rivera, during a Zoom press conference on January 10th, indicated that Alex's right calf injury had been worse than people thought. A piece on Alex Smith on CBS's 60 Minutes on January 17th reported that Alex's right calf injury had been, or at the very least had included, a bone bruise to his surgically repaired right leg. Alex, on the 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt podcast that dropped on February 17th, referred to the injury as having been a bone contusion and as having been unrelated to the 17 surgeries that Alex underwent on his right leg. Here's the deal. Alex didn't want Vermillion knowing about or treating this injury, whatever it was, right calf, bone contusion, whatever. This, I believe, is why there was so much mystery and confusion with Alex's injury. What was it? When did it start? Why is this taking so long? What's going on here? Alex trusted Dr. Robin West, right? She had served as the lead physician and surgeon for Alex over 17 surgeries on the right leg. Alex did not trust Vermillion and West and Vermillion did not get along. And so given A, West's connection with Anova and Anova's connection with Dwight Shaw and B, Ron Rivera's relationship with history with and belief in Ryan Vermillion, the choice was easy in terms of who stayed and who went. Additionally, remember what Alex said in that article on SI.com that came out on April 22nd. Remember, this was part of the uh, hit parade for Alex as he was leaving the Washington football team, right? First came the GQ.com article, then came the SI.com article. But this piece on SI.com came out on April 22nd, three days after Alex announced his retirement on April 19th. Here's the key excerpt for our purposes here. Quote, at camp, players wore GPS trackers and none traversed 4,000 yards a day on average, like Smith, whose coaches asked him to carry extra weight, push sleds, and hurdle bags for drills, tasks he had never done in 15 pro seasons, let alone before his leg had to be rebuilt. Smith believed the team wanted to see if it could break him, and if that sounds paranoid, the team physician agreed with him. They seem to be asking, Dr. Robin West says, what can he withstand? Are you sure you're clearing him? The coaches would ask. 
West would try and explain. The short answer, yes. The disclaimer, she would assess his leg based on her informed medical opinion. I got very little support, she says. He almost died. He almost lost his leg. Why would he want to? Reasonable questions. That's not your decision, West told them. Smith found the coaches patronizing, meaning he believed they preferred a cute story, the comeback already at the end. His father, Doug, says he believes the team sabotaged the return. None of the Smiths could figure out why. The coaches could worry about the injury and his future, but they were not experts. I'd rather have somebody right in my face say, what are you thinking, Smith says. It pissed me off, end quote. But this was notable about this SI.com piece, not just Alex sounding off, but Dr. Robin West partnering up with Alex in the sounding off. Dr. Robin West backing up Alex in the sounding off. And now, I believe, we have a better understanding why, especially this item in that passage that I just read to you. Smith believed the team wanted to see if it could break him, and if that sounds paranoid, the team physician agreed with him. They seem to be asking, Dr. Robin West says, what can he withstand? You know, that piece seemed like an attack on the coaching staff, and I think it largely was, but I think Ryan Vermillion is included in that, especially because you can consider Vermillion essentially an extension of the coaching staff. So what are we to take from all of this? Well, like I said, it's hard to know who's right and who's wrong. And it may be that both West and Vermillion were right in their own ways. I don't know that this has to be a situation in which one side was wrong and one side was right. What I do know is this. Ryan Vermillion is a major player behind the scenes right now for the Washington football team. Ron Rivera very much believes in Ryan Vermillion. Ryan Vermillion is a made guy in the family over which Don Ron presides. Understand the history. Washington on January 6th, 2020, officially announced the hiring of Ryan Vermillion as the head athletic trainer. He replaced the fired Larry Hess. Vermillion spent 18 seasons as the head athletic trainer for the Carolina Panthers, 2002 through 2019. Nine of those seasons were spent working under Ron Rivera when he was the Panthers head coach, right? 2011, deep into the 2019 season. Now, it's interesting. Vermillion actually, prior to working for the Panthers, worked for Washington. He was the Skins Director of Rehabilitation in 2001. But Ryan Vermillion has been around the NFL forever. Ryan Vermillion worked under Don Shula uh, for the Miami Dolphins, 1992 through 2000. Vermillion is a Rivera guy. Vermillion isn't going anywhere, especially also when you consider what went down this past season from a training staff standpoint for the Washington football team. Washington in the 2020 regular season had the fewest number. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Number of players put on a COVID-19 list, just two, and both players weren't even on the active roster. Matt Ioannidis, who was on the reserve slash injured list at the time of his placement on the reserve slash COVID-19 list, and running back Javon Leak, who was on Washington's practice squad at the time of his placement on the COVID-19 practice squad list. And Ron, when asked about the great success that Washington had with the COVID-19 pandemic, would credit who, right? Ryan Vermillion. Ryan Vermillion is a Don Ron guy. Ryan Vermillion is here to stay. Just ask Alex Smith and Robin West. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. So on last Friday's installment of the podcast, I said that the next time that you and I spoke on the podcast, the capital season could be over. And sure enough, it was. On this Friday installment of the podcast, I say the same thing about the Wizards. Their season could end on this Memorial Day weekend. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, the Wizards down 2-0 to the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of the NBA playoffs have Game 3 at Capital One Arena, Saturday night at 7, then Game 4 at Capital One Arena, Monday night at 7. The series very much to me feels over. We'll see. I don't have much hope. I would love to be wrong on something like this. Yeah, the Wizards losing Game 1 at the Philadelphia 76ers, 125-118, last Sunday afternoon. What was a winnable game for the Wizards, a more than respectable performance, but Wiz fell apart for a good chunk of the second half that included their top two players being way too sloppy. Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, those two guys combined for nine turnovers in the second half. The Wizards had nine turnovers in the second half. Yes, Every Wizards turnover in the second half was committed by either Bradley Beal or Russell Westbrook. Wiz led by five in the third quarter at 77-72, but they then allowed the Sixers to go on a 36-20 run that put the Wizards down 108-97 in the fourth quarter. Then we had the debacle that was game two on Wednesday night, a 120-95 Wizards loss 
in Philadelphia. A no-doubt route, Wizards' largest lead in the game, a one-point lead in the first quarter. Wizards never led in any of the final three quarters of the game. In the second half, never trailed by fewer than 12 points. In the fourth quarter, trailed by as many as 27 points. And the Wiz in that game, two for 22 on threes. It just doesn't feel real good right now, does it? Especially when you consider the history that the Wizards are battling. The NBA expanded first round series in the NBA playoffs from best of five series to best of seven series, beginning with the 2003 NBA playoffs. Number one seeds in best of seven first round series with 2-0 leads are 25-0 and in those series when you look at what's taken place 2003 NBA playoffs through the 2020 NBA playoffs. 0-25. That's the history that the Wizards are combating here in being down 2-0 to the Philadelphia 76ers. I am interested in what kind of crowds we'll have at Capital One Arena this weekend. In fact, if you're going to either game or both games, let me know. Uh, Tell me how the crowd is or crowds are. The Wizards on Wednesday did announce that as a result of Washington, D.C. approving Monumental Sports Entertainment's request to increase capacity to 50%, uh, the Wizards are able to welcome nearly 10,000 fans into Capital One Arena for these games coming up here on Saturday night and Monday night. So that'll be cool. I'm looking forward to that. I'm excited to see that. Interested, though, to see, do we get capacity crowds at Capital One Arena? I'd like to think that we do, but we'll see. I mean, I think if you're a Wizards fan, you probably know this, but in case you don't, uh, Capital One Arena at times is like a morgue for Wizards games, okay? But here you are in the NBA playoffs, great surge to end the regular season. Yeah, the Wizards down 2-0, but I'd like to think that we'll get good representation here uh, at Cap 1 this weekend. We'll see. I'm anxious to see uh, how that plays out. We do have an update, by the way, on Popcorn Gate. Uh, the popcorn thrower has been caught. You'll recall what happened on Wednesday night. Russell Westbrook playing for just one minute, 32 seconds in the fourth quarter as he left the game due to an ankle injury. And Westbrook, as he was walking into the tunnel, got popcorn dumped on him by a fan at Wells Fargo Center and then had to be restrained. The Philadelphia 76ers on Thursday morning issued a statement saying that the person who doused Westbrook with the popcorn in game two is having, quote, his season ticket membership revoked, effective immediately, end quote, and is, quote, banned from all events at Wells Fargo Center indefinitely, end quote. So it turns out the guy was a season ticket holder, but he's had the season ticket membership taken away and he has been banned indefinitely from Wells Fargo. Now, how does that work if he ever wants to come back? Like, how, how do you petition for reinstatement when you've been banned? Like, do you have to write a letter? Is there some board that you have to go before? Is it up to maybe Russell Westbrook to decide when this guy's allowed back at Wells Fargo Center? I'm not sure of the rules on this. Anyway, 76ers in the statement also apologize to Russell Westbrook And the Wizards quote for being subjected to this type of unacceptable and disrespectful behavior. There is no place for it in our sport or arena. End quote. Look, there's a big part of me that doesn't think this popcorn thing is that big of a deal. I mean, a really big deal has been made at a popcorn gate. And I'm not trying to say like it was nice what happened to Russell Westbrook. It was disrespectful what happened to him. What happened to him should not happen. But at the end of the day, it's popcorn. Okay, it's like, remember Allen Iverson, the famous practice rant? We talk about practice. We're talking about popcorn, okay? The guy didn't douse Westbrook with a beer. 
The guy didn't throw his shoe at Westbrook. We're talking about popcorn. So all of this outrage that's come from various corners of the NBA and the media and the fans, like, I hear you. It shouldn't have happened. The guy deserves to be punished. But like, let's, let's get a grip on this too. It's freaking popcorn that got thrown on Russell Westbrook. I will say this though. The NBA has had a bit of a problem with this kind of thing lately. And something much more serious happened at Madison Square Garden in game two of the New York Knicks Atlanta Hawks series. A fan at MSG spit on the Hawks Trey Young. All right. Now that's bad. That's nasty. All right. And so on Thursday, the Knicks announced that they have indefinitely banned a fan, the person who spit on Trey Young at MSG in game two of Knicks Hawks in the first round. There's no place for that. That's terrible. And there's no place for throwing popcorn on Russell Westbrook. I'm not trying to say that there is, but I just, I don't know. There's been a lot of time spent on popcorn gate. And I'm just kind of like, this to me is one of the things that can be annoying about the NBA. It's never about the games. It's always about this other stuff. Who's getting along with who? Who said what about who? Who tweeted what about who? Like this to me is one of the problems with the NBA. It's one of the reasons I think why the television ratings haven't been very good over the last few years. The NBA has become about selling everything but the basketball, everything but the games. And this whole popcorn thing to me has been a reminder of that. But the biggest thing regarding Westbrook right now is his health. Uh, I hope he's doing well. I hope he's good to go on Saturday night. How is he doing with his ankle injury? And is he going to play better? Because he has not been good in this series. You know, there's been a thing with Russell Westbrook in recent seasons of he's not been very good in the playoffs, and that has continued in the 2021 NBA playoffs. Westbrook did not have a very good game one, 0-2 on threes, just 7-15 of on twos, committed six turnovers, including three in the fourth quarter, and had just five rebounds, which would be good for most point guards, but is well less than half of his per-game average for this past regular season. Westbrook averaged 11.5 rebounds per game this past regular season. Now, he did finish game one with 16 points and 14 assists, including eight assists in the second half. But also for Westbrook in the second half of game one was him scoring just six points on two or seven shooting. And then in game two, Westbrook was even worse. 0 of three on threes, just two of seven on twos, just six of 10 on free throws, finished with 10 points, 11 assists versus four turnovers and six rebounds. This has not been the Russell Westbrook that we saw for so much of the regular season. Forget about triple doubles. I'm not interested in those in the postseason. If you get them, great, but it's not about that. But Westbrook was playing in a more efficient manner down the stretch of the regular season. You have not seen that so far, and you certainly have not seen dynamic Russell Westbrook. You know, he plays hard. I I give him that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love watching him. He plays with a ferocity and a tenacity that the Wizards have lacked for so much of their recent history. But in terms of being dynamic, in terms of, you know, Superman Westbrook, we haven't seen that so far in these playoffs, nor have we seen that from Bradley Beal. You know, Beal's had his stretches in his moments. It's not like Beal's been terrible, but he hasn't been great. That's for sure. You know, neither guy's played like a superstar so far in this series, not in my opinion. There are many big picture questions to explore once the Wizards season is over. We're not there yet, but we're getting close, and we could be there by the time we next speak on this podcast. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly. All right, the Nationals, they right now are in the midst of a nine-game homestand against three very beatable teams. This is supposed to be a homestand on which the Nats get fat and happy and get their season on the right track, and maybe it ends up being a homestand that provides us with just that. The Nats did take care of business against the Orioles with a three-game sweep 
last weekend. But the Nats did not take care of business against the Cincinnati Reds. Nats ended up losing two of three in that now-concluded series. 2-1 loss on Tuesday night, a 5-3 win in a rain-suspended game that was completed on Thursday afternoon, but then a 3 nothing seven-inning loss on Thursday night in what was considered game two of a doubleheader, ergo just the seven innings. That's now our 4-2 and two on the nine-game homestand and 21-25 and 25 overall. Now, before we go any further, the mess that was Wednesday night, a three-hour, four-minute rain delay during which the communication to the fans at Nationals Park was awful. I asked to hear from those of you who were at Nationals Park, and I did hear from you. You can always email me, the Algaldi Podcast at Yahoo.com. Email from Martin Davison. Yeah, we were at the game last night. Left after an hour of waiting and no updates, plus all the concessions started to close. The only entertainment was a streaker who ran across the field, then disappeared into the tube they used for the field tarp. Yes, the streaker uh, was all the rage for a period of time. Uh, eventually, the cops flushed him out and escorted him out. They looked ticked off since they were completely soaked in the rain. They have offered to substitute the tickets for a future game, but I agree that waiting until 11.30 to call the game off was ridiculous and not customer-oriented. Ah, see, that's the thing, Martin. It apparently was called prior to 11.30, or at least prior to the rest of us knowing. Email from Eric Fussfield. I was one of the Nats fans who got done dirty last night. It was my first trip to the ballpark since the 2019 NLCS, so I was understandably happy to be there and prepared to wait patiently until play resumed. My friend and I stood on the concourse for two and a half hours, waiting in vain for an announcement from the team before finally leaving at 11 p.m. But here's why I can't blame MLB as opposed to the Nets. My friend and I got word about the rescheduling of the game, not from the stadium scoreboard or the Nats website, but from the Reds website. I can't believe the home team wasn't privy to this information when the visiting team was. Yes, and how about this? The Cincinnati Reds team was on a bus leaving Nationals Park before fans at Nationals Park were told that the game had been suspended. When we talk about bad communication, that's the definition. That's the epitome of bad communication. Ushers, workers at Nationals Park were starting to clean up the ballpark and the scoreboard at the stadium still read, hey, we're still in the delay. That's inexcusable. And this has happened before at Nationals Park. This is not the first time something like this has happened where fans have had to wait a ridiculous amount of time to find out about the status of a game and it ends up being that the game is postponed or the game is suspended, you know, whatever the case may be. And it's like, you couldn't have figured this out sooner. You couldn't have told us sooner. I think everyone understands it takes time to figure out, okay, are we going to try to continue this game tonight? Or are we going to postpone the game? Or are we going to suspend the game? Like everyone gets that you're not going to figure the thing out in 15 minutes, but three plus hours. And it had been figured out because like I said, the Reds players, the Reds team was on the bus leaving the ballpark before the fans in the ballpark were told about what was happening. See, here's the thing. Major League Baseball is competing for your disposable income, and it is a heavy competition because for a lot of people, the disposable income has gone down over the last year. This area is a very competitive area when it comes to things to do, right? You have a bunch of sports options. You have a bunch of entertainment options. You need to do your customers right 
You don't need to do your customers dirty. And way too often, when it rains at Nationals Park, the customer gets done dirty. Now, in fairness to the Nats, this is not exclusive to the Nats. This happens with a lot of teams in Major League Baseball, but that doesn't make it right. What happened on Wednesday night was not good. Be better. Do better for the customer. You know, going to Nationals games at Nationals Park is not cheap. Uh, certainly just to park in that area is not easy nor cheap. If you're being honest about things, Nationals Park is not an easy drive for most people. You know, it's not exactly the most conveniently located stadium in this area. In fact, where I live in Montgomery County, I know a lot of people for whom driving to Oriole Park at Camden Yards is an easier and better drive than driving to Nationals Park. The point here is make the fan experience at Nationals Park as pleasant as can be so that the fan wants to repeat the experience. Don't do the fan dirty as was done on Wednesday night. All right, so the Nats did win game two of this series and actually won it thanks a lot to Joe Ross. Uh, Joe Ross, who had not been pitching well, actually did pitch well in this game two win. Tossed four scoreless innings with four strikeouts on Wednesday night. Now, the game, of course, ends up getting suspended due to rain, so Ross only lasts for the four innings, but he looked good and he needed to look good. Uh, I've wondered about Joe Ross's hold on his spot in the Nats rotation, I think at least for now, you can say, okay, uh, he has stopped the bleeding here. We'll see how he does in his next outing. He's got to get back to piecing together, you know, two, three, four good, uh, very good starts in a row. But of what had happened over his previous two starts, 12 runs, 10 earned in seven and two thirds innings combined. Very nice to see Joe Ross do as he did on Wednesday night. And by the way, he had a two out RBI single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the third inning. Joe Ross this season over 15 plate appearances has a 286 batting average, 286 on base percentage, and 286 slugging percentage. So that's about as cool of a slash line as you'll ever see. 286, 286, 286. But he, he's one of the better hitting pitchers out there. And he had a big hit uh, in the game that started on Wednesday night, ended on Thursday afternoon. Now, what was uh, weird about this game was because it was suspended and carried over into Thursday, obviously you couldn't have Ross resume pitching. So the Nats had to go with a bullpen approach to close the thing out. Austin Voth, quote unquote, started the completion of the game on Thursday, and he only went for two innings. I think you wanted him to go at least three. He went for two. They were two scoreless innings. He did he did a good job by and large. But Davey Martinez ended up having to use five relievers to close out the 5-3 win over the Reds. Both went two scoreless innings. Kyle Finnegan tossed a scoreless seventh inning. And then the problems happened. Three-run Reds eighth. Tanner Rainey, major problems. He gets charged with all three runs. He records no outs. Rainey was making his return of having been on the COVID-19 injured list since May 19th due to having been, remember, a close contact. Remember, the guy who actually contracted COVID-19, Eric Fetty, has been vaccinated, but remains out. Uh, what's happening with Eric Fetty here really is wrong. He has now been out officially for a week plus. He's asymptomatic. He's almost at no risk of spreading the virus, but he remains out. I, I just it, To me, it's not right what's happening with Eric Fetty. Anyway, Rainey was back off the COVID-19 IL, and he did not look good. Allowed three consecutive singles, including a first pitch RBI single to Nick Castellanos. The outing leaves Rainey with an ERA of 9.49 and a whip of 2.19 on the season. The ERA should be 2.19, not the whip. That's a problem when the whip is 2.19. 
Tanner Rainey was so good last season, dealt with injury in spring training, and he's just been all over the place so far this season. You know, his velocity was actually good in the game. That wasn't the problem. His location, though, was a mess, and Tanner Rainey ends up giving up three singles in the inning, gets pulled in favor of Daniel Hudson. So now you have to go to your best reliever on the season and Daniel Hudson, when I think pretty clearly Davey was hoping to avoid having to use Hudson in this game. And Hudson actually wasn't that good. Now, he technically tossed a scoreless inning, but he allowed the two inherited runners to score thanks to giving up two singles and an RBI sack fly. Did record two strikeouts, but this is why you have to be careful when judging relievers by their earned run averages because here's a case of Daniel Hudson, again, technically tossed a scoreless inning, but he was on the mound for the scoring of two Reds runs, right? Allowed the two inherited runners to score. Now, Hudson has been very good this season. I don't want to sit here and start ripping the guy, but uh, but that was not a particularly good outing for Daniel Hudson. Uh, the good news is Brad Hand then came on for the ninth inning and looked pretty good. Wasn't perfect, but was good enough. Tossed a scoreless ninth inning. But yeah, five Nats relievers end up having to be used to close out this game. What was a Nationals win? 5-3 in the rain suspended game that got completed on Thursday afternoon. The other thing with this game was the Nationals uh, actually hit pretty well. Nine hits, six walks, five of 12 with runners in scoring position. But if you look at the specifics of how the Nats scored their five runs, the five runs were scored on four singles and a walk. This is how the Nats score runs this season. You know, nickel and dime, paper cuts you to death, that kind of a thing. Never a three-run homer and a two-run homer for the five runs. It has to be four singles and a walk. This has been one of the biggest problems for the Nationals. Not hitting for enough power, not enough home runs, not enough doubles. Nats did have a triple in the game. That is true. Luis Garcia went out pinch triple in the Nats' two-run six, despite having been down in the count at one point. One, two. Remember the Nats on Tuesday recalling Luis Garcia from AAA Rochester as the corresponding roster move to putting Victor Robles on the 10-day injured list on Sunday due to a sprained right ankle uh, that was suffered in that 4-3 win at the Chicago Cubs on May 19th. So nice to see Garcia get himself a hit there. Nats in the game went 5-12 with runners in scoring position. Was good to see that. Garcia was the Nats starting second baseman for the nightcap of the doubleheader, the 3 nothing loss, and Garcia went 0 for 3 in that game. As yes, the Nationals offense in game three against the Reds was woeful. And we have seen this many times, way too many times already this season. And we saw it again on Thursday night. The Nats in this game totaled just two hits and one walk over the seven innings. Got totally shut down by Sonny Gray, who's a good pitcher, but not a great pitcher. Six scoreless innings with five strikeouts. There just was not a lot happening, once again, for the Nationals offense in a game this season. Two hits, one walk, there's your ball game right there. And I know it's a seven-inning game, but still, two hits, one walk, that's ridiculous. Uh, Juan Soto did have one of the hits and the walk. He went one for two with a single and a walk, one-out single in the bottom of the first, two-out four-pitch walk in the bottom of the sixth. But how about this now with Juan Soto? So he was in that starting right fielder and number two batter at all three games in the series. It's not like he was awful in the series. He went three for nine with three singles and three walks. But that's the thing, three singles. Juan Soto now, since coming off the 10-day injured list on May 4th, has a 276 batting average, okay, a 396 on base percentage, okay, but a 382 slugging percentage, not okay. His on-base percentage, since he came off the 10-day IL, is better than his slugging percentage by 14 points. 
it's not supposed to work that way. The slugging percentage should always be higher than the on-base percentage. What does this mean? Juan Soto is hitting for like zero power. He's not elevating balls when he gets hits. They are singles. He is drawing walks. That's good, and that should not be minimized. But he's not hitting for any power right now. 396 on base percentage since he came off the 10-day IL, but a 382 slugging percentage since he came off the 10-day IL. Uh, it was a rough series for Kyle Schwarber, starting left fielder, number four batter in all three games, one for 10 with a single and three strikeouts. Again, where's the power? I mean, this is your cleanup batter. He goes one for 10 with a single and three strikeouts over three games. How about Starling Castro? Boy, is Starling Castro in a rut right now. Castro was an at starting third baseman and number five batter in all three games in the series. He went one for 10 with a single and a walk. You know, Castro had a 754 OPS on the season through games on May 13th. That's not great, but it's also not terrible. His OPS now on the season is 644. His OPS for the season, beginning with games on May 14th, has plummeted 110 points. And he's your number five batter on the regular here. See, this is the problem. The Nationals roster is flawed. We've talked about this. And so they have as their cleanup batter, Kyle Schwarber, who's been, you know, down. Then he was up and he was doing well, but he's come back down a bit here over these last few games. Starling Castro is your number five batter, a guy who hits for like no power, you know, bunch of singles. He's your number five batter. Again, OPS down 110 points since the start of games on May 14th. Not good. And this is what the Nats are going with as their lineup here. You know, you did get some good stuff from Trey Turner. 5-3 win over the Reds. Had a one-out four-pitch walk and a stolen base in the bottom of the second. One-out RBI single and a stolen base in the two-run six. Turner had the Nats' other hit in the game on Thursday night. Uh, he had a two-out full-count infield single in the bottom of the third. And actually, that was uh, a highlight worth watching if you can get your eyes on it. Trey Turner on that infield single, a sprint speed per stat cast that was the sixth fastest of the season up until that point. 32.3 feet per second. Trey Turner can run. We all know that. But that was some job of running that he did on that infield single. He is an outstanding athlete. Uh, so it was nice to see that. But yeah, man, the Nats offense just isn't good. And there is an element of luck to an extent. That is true. You know, Josh Bell, who, by the way, had a good game in the game two win for the Nats, one out single on a one-two pitch in the Nats two run first, two out full count single in the Nats two run six. So he had one of the unluckiest outs that you'll ever see in the three nothing seven inning loss on Thursday night. Bottom of the six, two outs, runner on first. Josh Bell smashed a line drive. That first stat cast went 115.8 miles per hour. In fact, it was the second hardest hit ball by a Nats player in the season up until that point. But what happened? The ball was capably fielded by the Red starting pitcher, Sonny Gray, for a 1-3 inning ending ground out. So like, there's an example of you do everything right. I mean, Josh Bell tattooed that baseball, still ended up being out, but there wasn't nearly enough of that on Thursday night. The Nats didn't lose that game. The Nats didn't get shut out over the seven innings due to bad luck. The Nats got shut out because the Nats didn't hit well. And in fact, David Martinez ripped the Nats after the game, basically said the Nats were too patient at the plate, weren't aggressive enough attacking fastballs. This has been a bad offensive team this season. And, you know, just as we sort of feel like, okay, maybe they're coming out of it, you know, Josh Bell's doing better, Kyle Schwarber 
had been doing better. You know, Juan Soto is off the 10-day IL. We're kind of back now to this thing of, yeah, they look good in some games, but they still look bad way too often in other games. And so what you're left with is a team that isn't a very good offensive team. Like, that's the way that it's been so far this season. Steven Strasburg was the Nats starting pitcher in game three against the Reds. And it was a weird outing for him, I thought. Three runs in five innings on five strikeouts versus five hits, which were a homer, two doubles, and two singles. He issued a walk. He issued a hit by pitch. He threw just 49 strikes versus 38 balls on 87 pitches. Strasburg's fastball command was not good on Thursday night. He gave up a run in the top of the first on a leadoff homer by Eugenio Suarez. But Strasburg also was victimized by some terrible luck in the top of the fifth inning. Here's an example, a legitimate example of some real bad luck. Strasburg gives up two runs in the top of the fifth on a string of unlucky hits. This was the definition of what I like to call getting babbipped. Babbipped is batting average on balls in play. Strasburg got babbipped in the Reds' two-run fifth on Thursday night. He gave up a one-out single by the Reds' starting pitcher, Sonny Gray, on a one-two pitch and a ball that was deflected by Strasburg. Then did come a two-out five-pitch walk of Eugenio Suarez, but then came a two-out RBI single by Jesse Winker on a ball that was en route to Trey Turner, but then ricocheted off second base and past Turner. I mean, you couldn't have maneuvered that baseball better if you had a remote control from a Reds perspective. And then came, how about this, a two-out RBI double by Tyler Naquin on a ball that was sliced into left field and barely landed in fair territory. You know, there's giving up two runs in an inning and you just get rocked. There's giving up two runs in an inning in which you do basically things well and you just are the victim of a bunch of bad luck. You are a victim of the variance of the batted ball. And that's what happened to Strasburg in that two-run Reds fifth inning. So Strasburg gives up three runs in five innings. He wasn't great. Again, he didn't throw enough strikes, but he also wasn't as bad as the three runs in five innings might suggest. That's bullpen was good in the 3 nothing seven-inning loss to the Reds on Thursday night. Two relievers combining for two scoreless innings. Wander Suero, a scoreless top of the six. Kyle McGowan, a scoreless top of the seventh. Next up for the Nats, the conclusion of the nine-game homestand. A three-game series against the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park. The first time that the Nats have faced the Brewers since the 2019 National League wildcard game. One of the great games, obviously, in the history of Nationals Park, especially when you consider, right, the Nats didn't win a single home game in the 2019 World Series, but still won the World Series. Uh, pitching matchups for the series, game one, Friday night, 7.05, battle lefties, John Lester versus Brett Anderson. Game two, Saturday night, 7.15, Patrick Corbin versus Freddie Peralta. And then game three, Sunday afternoon at 1.05, Max Scherzer versus Brandon Woodruff. Two of the best pitchers in the majors so far this season. Going to be going head-to-head Sunday afternoon, Memorial Day weekend. That's going to be a lot of fun to watch. But the Nats, to me, need to get two out of three in this series. You need to go six and three on this homestand minimum, especially given that you started off the homestand with a three-game sweep of the Orioles, and especially given that you're facing three very beatable teams on this homestand. And again, the Orioles the Reds, and next up, the Brewers. If the Nats are going to be the team that people want them to be this year, then on a homestand like this, you got to go six and three minimum. Nats can still do that, but they got to take two out of three against Milwaukee. Well, the Orioles continue to plummet and plummet hard. 5-1 loss at the Chicago White Sox 
on Thursday night in game one of a four-game series. Ten consecutive losses now, two and 17 since the 15 and 16 start, 17 and 33 is the overall record. It's like the baseball gods heard Mike Elias telling any Orioles fan who would listen on Wednesday, uh, suck it up, pal, because it's going to be like this for a while, and made sure that things got even worse with this loss on Thursday night. And the loss happened despite Bruce Zimmerman having a really nice outing, you know, especially when you consider how Bruce Zimmerman has pitched for a good chunk of this season so far. Zimmerman on Thursday night, one run in five innings, six strikeouts. I mean, really good. Zimmerman, remember, was awful in his last outing, that 12-9 Orioles loss at the Nationals last Saturday. Five runs in three innings for Zimmerman in that game, but he was good at the White Sox on Thursday night, just like he was good in actually his outing now two outings ago, his relief appearance in what ended up being a 10-6 win over the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on May 16th. In that game, the Orioles went with an opener, started the reliever Adam Pletko, who got shelled four runs in the top of the first on two homers, two singles, and a walk. Zimmerman comes into the game and does well. Uh, One run in five and two-thirds innings on six strikeouts. So he now has actually been good in two of his last three outings. The problem for the Orioles on Thursday night was the bullpen, which has been wretched lately and was wretched again in this game. Four Orioles relievers combined to allow four runs over the sixth and seventh innings. Uh, you also had a scary moment with Trey Mancini getting hit by a pitch and leaving the game. He got hit by a pitch in the top of the first, left the game due to what has been labeled as a right elbow contusion. Uh, initial x-rays and an exam were negative for a fracture. Uh, good news there, but that doesn't mean that he won't be missing time. Mancini has been lights out lately. We've been chronicling this on the podcast. Hate to see him uh, exit due to a potential injury. And another guy who's been on fire, Anthony Santander, continued to be so on Thursday night. He was the Orioles' number three batter and starting DH, had a leadoff single in the top of the six on an 0-2 pitch, had a one-out double in the top of the eighth, despite having been down in that count at 1.02. Santander is so good when he's got two strikes on him, and he has been outstanding since the O's activated him off the 10-day injured list last Friday. He'd been on the 10-day IL since April 21st due to a sprained left ankle. Since then, Santander's first series back, the three-game sweep at the Nationals, six for 13 with a homer, two doubles, three singles, and a walk. Santander in the next series, the three-game sweep at the Minnesota Twins, four for 12 with three doubles and a single. And then he has himself a double and a single in the game on Thursday night. Of course, the Orioles keep losing. Okay, all these games I just took it through, (laughs) the Orioles lost. Uh, But Santander, who was very good for the Orioles last season, has been really good so far this season, especially since coming off the IL. But yes, the losses continue to pile up. This is a tanking Orioles season, as you certainly know by now. Game two for the O's at the White Sox. Friday night at 8-10, Matt Harvey versus Dallas Keuchel. Is Matt Harvey pitching for his spot in the Orioles rotation? He has been really bad over his last three outings. Matt Harvey in his last outing, the 6-5 loss at the Nationals last Sunday afternoon, six runs, five earned in four and two-thirds innings. His start prior to that one, 13-6 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays at Camden Yards on May 18th, second shortest start of his major league career, six runs in one and two-thirds innings. And the start prior to that one, 
the return of the Dark Knight to Gotham. Matt Harvey, his return to City Field in a 7-1 Orioles loss at the New York Mets on May 12th. Seven runs in four and a third innings. It's not been good for Matt Harvey. Off him having done a pretty good job, all things considered, to begin the season. Remember, Matt Harvey began the season as the number two starter in the Orioles rotation, but here we are now, 10 starts into his 2021 season. He has an ERA of 631. He has a whip of 158. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. As I said early in the show, the plan is for there to be no installment of the podcast on Monday, i.e. Memorial Day. If something big happens, I will do a show, but otherwise, it shall be a holiday for the Al Galdi podcast. In the meantime, the weekend, especially an extended weekend, always a good time to catch up on anything that you may have missed. Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, great insight on the Washington football team. He believes that Washington is a Super Bowl contender. Our conversation was in episode 68. In-depth coverage of what Ron Rivera and Ryan Fitzpatrick said at their Zoom press conferences after Tuesday's OTA practice. That's in episode 71. Jay-Z potentially becoming a minority owner of the Washington football team and a deep dive into the many team-friendly contracts that Washington has signed players to this offseason. All of that is in episode 72. I've done a lot this week on the Capitals in the end of their season. Had a very good chat with John Press, the founder of Japers Rink. That's in episode 70. Enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. Thank you to all who have served and are serving our country. We, of course, remember all of those who have died serving our country. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Not very good.